Greetings, fellow adventurers, travellers, deplorables, delcons, delusional sufferers of all that's going on in the world today. I, uh, this is the Pushing Rubber Podcast, episode number 57. I am your host, Adam Piggott, coming to you from the uh, autumn-swept, wind-swept landscape that is uh, the Greenbelt in Holland. Been around a bit today, got out and about, went to the gym, did the shopping, did a few things. Now here I am with a podcast, which we skipped last week because I did one for Aaron Cleary. It was a great one. I hope you listened to it. It was, it was good fun. Um, really good fun. I like bouncing off someone else. I like bouncing off someone else. I like hearing the shit that someone else saying and then take them to pieces. I... So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this publicly. But I'm going to say this publicly because maybe it'll up the ante and get us to get off our butts. But the great one and I are considering doing a regular dual podcast together. Um, so uh, if I put that out there publicly, then maybe it will compel us to, to get our act together. We're, we're still trying to work out the form of what we want to do because I'd like to have it a little bit structured um and maybe even get guests in and that sort of thing we can interview people um and he's better on the technical audio stuff than i am you'd think being a musician that i'd be good on the technical audio stuff but i'm not i'm really not when i was playing in bands back in the day i had all sorts of problems with my electrical guitar sound getting it right had a great amp had a fender twin reverb 1965 reissue um, could never get it to sound right. Years later, I worked out what the problem was. The guitar wasn't good enough. I had a, um, I had a, I wasn't, I didn't have the money to get a, a, a regular Les Paul, Gibson Les Paul. So I got the Epiphone copy. Nah, didn't do the job. Didn't do the job. Now I have a Gibson uh, 335 Jazz Series, C335. Very nice guitar. Uh, but I don't have an amp at the moment. I don't have an amp. Uh, I should pick one up. I am considering getting something going, some gigs going here in the, in the Netherlands. Uh, they do have a bit of a live music scene, and there are some good musos here. So um, stay tuned for that one. Maybe uh, maybe I'll get, I'll get something happening, like the little band I had going in Italy while I was there. Because I, I do miss it. I do miss, uh, I do miss playing live. Playing live is fun. I think, uh, yeah, some of the, you don't have to be in front, of, I've played in front of a lot of people before, um, but uh, I think the best, the best live session I ever did, ever, for me personally as a musician was uh, in Uganda in Kampala at the U- Kampala Musicians Club. They met every Monday night in this uh, top floor of this um Oh, it was like an office building and you walked in and it was just like this room and it was a small room and a small little stage and facing the stage were just these lines of chairs like it was a classroom and then and then on inside one wall was a tiny little hole in the wall where the bar was and I remember the first time that I went down there this is in my book Pushing Rubber Down Hill and my rafting mates took me down there um, oh, I can't remember what names I gave them in the book 
uh, Milo was one. I can't remember the other name. Uh, but they took me down. I don't want to say their real names out here because I, I had to give them different names in the book because they wanted their identities protected because of their current relationships, probably. <laughs> Strangely enough, girls, girls' wives don't like hearing about hijinks that ex-river guides got up to. Don't know why. Don't know why. That's the way it is. My wife is very, um, uh, very good in that sense, I think. She's very good in that sense. Um, but um, they took me there and uh, and it was just, that was like there was a whole, I didn't have any instruments or anything with me in Uganda. I actually had to sell my instruments to get there, which the guys were a bit pissed off about. Uh, there was a drum kit set up and there was, you know, amps and guitars and microphones and PA and that sort of thing. And, and uh and and the place is packed full of mostly Ugandans, but there, there are probably about twenty percent expat white expats there as well. And uh, uh, the first time I played there, I just blew it away, and uh, that was great. But the the best the best live sesh for me ever was at that musicians club, and I turned up and to play, and for some reasons, for some reason, no other musos turned up for the first hour it was just me and this drummer and the drummer was a kenyan guy from mombasa uh which is a coastal town there a port the, the main kenyan port and uh big guy really friendly guy always broke as all africans were and thinking that i was full of money because i was white and i was just as broke as he was um and he's probably the best best drummer that i've ever ever played with uh he treated the drum as an instrument and not as a rhythm tracking machine. Uh, I tell you, as a musician, when you, when, you, when you finally play with a drummer who tre- treats the drum itself as an inter- instrument, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Like As a guitarist or any other instrument that's not drums, for instance, like the trumpet or the keyboard or whatever, you can, you can bring the intensity up, you can take it down, and that's what it's all about. It's about the notes that you don't play uh, just as much as the notes that you do play. It's about the gaps that you leave, the silences, and then you fill them. But maybe you do fill them, maybe you don't, or you fill them in, in an unexpected way. So the audience is, is there with you. They're, you're taking them up, you're taking them down, and they're, and they're on the edge of their seat. They want to see how you're going to fill that space. And it was just me and this drummer, and I said to him, so me on the guitar, him on the drums, and I said to, I said, well, we've got to play something for these guys. And there was only about a dozen people sitting in the room. The room could ho- probably hold about 60 or 70 people. There was probably a dozen people there. It was early. And one of them was one of my rafting guide mates. So he can back me up on this story. Though he never will publicly. <laughs> I don't even know why I said that. And uh, we just started playing. It's kind of like a bit of a... Um, bluesy jazzy improvisation that I made up just started going with it playing the same chord something like an an E7 or something like that and uh, up on the uh, 7th fret so an open chord going there not a bar chord and it's how you get the nice rhythm going and jazzy funky kind of thing and the drummer's following me and Man, we just took it off 20 minutes. 20 minutes it went for. And and it was intense. 
and there were periods where it was just like we had it right down we had it just going down like this and he's tip tip tipping away and i've just got a few notes and it's like the the guitar was talking to the drum and the drum was talking back to the guitar it was always it was always i was just this little step he was following me i was this little step in front of him we were going on a journey the guitar was taking the drum on the journey but the drum was more than capable of keeping up and the audience the 12 or so people that were there in the room were absolutely spellbound and we finally finished and there was that gap where it's finished and people kind of just can't believe what just happened i didn't believe what just happened i've I've never played like that since i've never played like that since and then finally everyone just kind of they break like they break out of a spell and they start clapping and blah 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 but that that moment there man i've never replicated that it was a high it was a natural high it was like i'd taken it was like i was on cocaine not that not that i not that i'd know what being on cocaine was like um it was just an absolute rush and uh since then, I played live a lot, and you get glimpses of it occasionally, but never twenty minutes, just twenty minutes full on intensely like that. Or another musician who completely gets it. And this this drummer was unremarkable in other ways, completely unremarkable. This is a big guy, big big Kenyan guy, blah blah blah, probably in his mid thirties. Friendly, fun to be around, but. Yeah, getting behind the, the drums and it was just like, wow, man, wow, wow. Which is incredible because believe it or not, Africans did, don't really have much rhythm. You think like the whole rhythm thing, like you know, dancing and stuff like that. I've seen, I've seen Ugandans dancing. It's pitiful, absolutely pitiful. This guy's good. All right, let's get into... Um, what we're going to talk about today. I've got a few a few topics. That was a bit of a segue. I had no plans to talk about that, but somehow I did. I don't know why. Um, we're going to got a few. First of all, um, the shooting over in um, Las Vegas at, uh, I think, Mandalay Bay at a country western gig. Um, it's really too soon to know what's happened here. But at the same time, I don't know if we're ever going to know what's happened here. There's no way one guy at that distance, even if it was a fully automatic weapon, hits f- over 500 people, almost 600 people he hit. It's just, there's just no way that that happened with one shooter out of a Mandalay Bay. And what really prompted me that, that I was looking at... Um, the Woodpile report this morning. Um, and he's talking about the shooting just a little bit. And um, he said something that was really interesting. Uh, who do we got here? Uh, he's talking about the machine gun. Do any of them know, this is reading off Woodpile Report and old Ramus, Uncle Ramus is speaking. Do any of them know if Paddock committed suicide? Paddock is the guy who was in the hotel room that they're saying did all the shooting. 
Do any of them know if Paddock committed suicide before or after the mass shooting? In other words, was it Paddock who did it? Or was he just, just some convenient patsy that was set up for it? He's a gambler in Las Vegas. I don't know. Hey, dude, we're uh, going to go up and hang out in this hotel room up here. It's going to be some flashbangs. We'll pay you 50 grand to do it. What the fuck? All right. Yeah, 50 grand. Then they just dump a whole bunch of guns at his house, plant a whole bunch of an arsenal, blah, blah, blah. There it is. There's your guy. Yep, yeah, white guy, blah, 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 up there. I was reading over at Vox Day's blog that apparently when the shooting started, the guys up on the crew and the, the band some technicians turn the lights on the audience um, which serves to illuminate the audience to make them whoever's shooting at them better able to see I don't know if we're ever going to the whole point is I don't know if you ever going to know this one guys I really don't I really don't but there's no way that, it, that, that a guy one guy with a machine gun hits 500 people from that distance look at the distance it's just so that's all I want to say about that one is I'm here with old Ramus here on, on the thing of like, did he commit suicide before or after the mass shooting? That's the question that, uh, that you need to know. Okay, second quick thing is kneeling during the anthem, which apparently is protesting uh, police brutality. <laughs> Racism, fuck me. Which is amazing considering the, uh, the level of criminality in the NFL. The National Felony League, I heard it described as, because the amount of players, uh, predominantly black, who've been convicted of various crimes over the years. Best one of those. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how this all coincided with O.J. Simpson getting released uh, from prison? One of the best examples of an NFL thug. Let that one go. Um, the left are making out like this is a whole freedom of speech thing. Uh, on the term of the players, um, finally they did. They didn't make it out that it was much of a freedom of speech thing from the guy who got fired from Google, the engineer, software engineer from Google who got fired, because that was apparently freedom of speech. Even though, even though, even though what the the NFL players are doing is political, is completely political in nature, and is left, progressive left political act at your place of employment. Free speech doesn't cover that. And whereas the, the guy who got fired from Google, it was not political. It was merely guys. Some aspects of the, the direction that we're going aren't the best. And here's the reasons why. In, on, on a forum, he did it on a forum that was specifically set up by management for people to voice their concerns. Um, it's interesting, this whole... Um, uh, I'll get back to the NFL in a sec, but this whole freedom of speech. The left, look, the left for the last 50 years have pretended to um, extol the, the, the virtues of freedom of speech, of free speech. But they did that while they, while they held control of, of, of the vast majority of, of the media, of the publishing houses, the printing presses, the radio shows, the TV news networks. The, the left were absolutely free to go on about the virtues of free speech while they had a complete monopoly, almost a complete monopoly over, um, over, over 
every aspect of getting your speech out there. Then the internet broke through, and the internet didn't break through until Facebook. Before Facebook, and I don't know if it was 2005 or 2006, but before, the, before Facebook, the internet was for nerds. That was it. The internet was for nerds. The regular member of the general public didn't even know the internet existed, apart from email. But for regards to going on message boards or anything like that, or discussions of what's going on, it was the internet was tiny, and that's why the that's why the the media barons didn't see the internet coming at them. It was a gradual build up, but Facebook exploded it. Facebook exploded it. There was, there was, I mean, I, I've been on the internet since, since I think I discovered the internet back in 1991 or 92, when it was literally, hey man, I can, we can talk to someone in London on the computer, look at this, what the fuck, that's cool, what do you even say, who are they? Good, very, very good friend of mine, uh, it's about 10 years older than me, we, we shared, uh, oh, we, we lived in separate apartments, but in the same little block. And he was a futures broker. And uh, I remember him showing it to me. So I'd check it with him. I, and I was, I was just young. And I was just like, why, why is that? Cool? I didn't even, didn't even. I was like, oh, yeah, whatever. Whatever. But that was my first exposure to the internet. Um, and then I got heavily into internet, internet with internet poker. And this is like, this is in the 90s. I think it was the original online poker was Planet Poker, I think. If you want to know, you know, LOL, LOL, where that originated. I'm pretty sure it originated on Planet Poker. Laugh out loud. You typed in because you could type out, you could type in little commands into the chat and press enter, and it would get the the sound effect going. And other people who were sitting on the same table would hear the same effect. So you're sitting on the table playing poker, and there was a lot of chat. It was, I tell you what, internet poker back in the day was fantastic because everyone on the table, everyone only played one table at once, and the chat box was completely filled. And you'd type in LOL, and people would hear like a a manic laugh would come out. And there was a whole bunch of different, that's the only one I can remember. There was one where you could get like uh, an Elvis voice to, to say something like an Elvis saying, I still remember that one. And it was just such a, it was such an event, you know, it was such a real, you, you weren't just playing poker, you were, you were, it was a real social occasion with the people that were on and you got, you got to know them too. It was, um, but I, I never spoke to people about this. This is like 99 2000 i never spoke to people about this because uh it'd be like fuck you're a nerd what are you doing on the computer man that's fucking stupid and then there was that moment when i uh i was living in italy up in the alps working as a rafting guide and i went down to the rafting base one morning and the majority of the staff were in the office on computers they were glued to the computers. This is 2005 or 2006, one of those years, can't remember which one. And I was like, what are you guys doing? Because the last thing I ever saw were these guys and girls on computers if they didn't have to be for work. And it was it was Facebook. It was Facebook, and that was it. That's when the internet took off. So we've had about a decade of it. 
And now we're at the point where the left are going to war on free speech. This whole moniker of describing it as hate speech, which is which is which is complete bullshit. I say something and something someone loves it. That's free speech. I say someone and someone hates it. Now suddenly that the same things that I said as hate speech. Who gets to define the hate? Remember, remember, boys and girls. Freedom of speech, defending freedom of speech only counts when the speech in question offends you. That's the only moment that it counts. It's very, very simple to defend speech that you agree with. Very, very simple indeed. But you quickly see the chips go down when, when someone says something that someone disagrees with and whether they still back them to say it. A great example, great example of that was the Australian media commentator and opinion journalist Andrew Bolt, who's of the conservative right. But then last year, uh, Australian cartoonist, humorist and social commentator Larry Pickering said something that Andrew Bolt thought went too far at a public meeting. And Andrew Bolt did this big tirade on his television show about how Larry Pickering should have been hounded from the stage because he went too far. And Andrew Bolt's been the biggest defender of free speech. And he was, until there was something that really offended Andrew Bolt. And suddenly the person in question needs to be hounded from the stage. It was pathetic. Really, really pathetic. Really deplorable. Freedom of speech only counts if the speech in question offends you. And the left have had a monopoly for the last 50 or 60 years. Complete monopoly. Just about. Apart from like crazy, the crazy right-wing talk show like Howard Stern and stuff like that. They were so out there that they were like, oh, well, I've got to let them have something. But otherwise, everything will be the same. Everything will sound exactly the same. Doesn't doesn't matter what channel you're on. What was that song that Bruce Springsteen wrote 20, 30 years ago? 67 channels and nothing on. He was right, and he's a lefty. So now they're, now they're cutting it down. And this, so back to the NFL, this is all about, this isn't about freedom of speech, this is about conformity. And you saw that with the one guy, the ex-army uh, ranger or whatever he was, captain, who went out and uh, and stood in the, in the tunnel there and stood for the anthem while the rest of the team were inside. And then uh, they trotted him out the Monday morning and made him uh, declare a... And you saw it, man. I made the... You, People don't understand the pressure that comes... This guy was an army ranger captain, I think. It's a ranger combat. And yet, you look at uh, you look at the look on his face and the body language. The body language chick... Uh, I can't remember her name. Hang on, let me write this. Link, link to body language chick. I'll put it in the uh, show notes. She did a, uh, a YouTube vid on, on his apology. The pressure they brought to bear on that guy, man. This guy is an ex-army ranger captain. Like a lot of us on the alt-right and the alt-west, it's another kind of an offshoot, talk about, oh, yeah, man, we wouldn't, wouldn't cave, wouldn't cave. Well, A, would you get through ranger training? Because <laughs> it's tough, man. You've got to be mentally 
tough. B, how'd you go leading men in actual combat? And then put you up against that guy because they broke him. They broke him in a weekend. Think about it too. He doesn't need the money. Surely not. But he caved. He caved. Now the Germans should really stop feeling... Part of the, the big problem with Germany is always war guilt that keeps infesting, you know. How could we Germans have done it? How could we Germans have done it? The average German. Well, just look at just look at that army ranger captain and and how they broke him in two days. That's how that's how it's done. You get with a program or you ain't got no program. Your program is cancelled. You're cancelled. That's how they're going about it. NFL. Um, oh, this is going to be really interesting. and I, I haven't seen this written anywhere. It might be written somewhere. Look, it most probably is. But um, Donald Trump used to own a football team back in the, uh, I think it was the 80s, a New York team. That was, they were set up a competition to compete against the NFL. Uh, and the NFL rubbed him out. And Donald Trump was like one of that. I think his team was the headline team. And Donald Trump was, was not just in the middle of it. He was out in front. So Donald Trump does not like the NFL. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, okay. And Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's the president of the United States. And the NFL has only got to where it's got because it's exempt... First of all, teams pay no property tax. I'm getting this off uh, Woodpole Report. I'm reading it as I tell, tell it to you. Teams pay no property tax and no sales tax. Think of the merchandise. No sales tax. Roger Goodall, the NFL commissioner, makes $44 million annually. 68% of NFL players are members of the African-American community. The minimum, minimum starting salary for a player is $465,000. And the big thing that's enabled them, like I said, is their antitrust exempt. What does that mean? Well... This goes back to Sports Broadcasting Act of 1961. Uh, President Kennedy signed the legislation. Of course he did. Um, it permitted a $4.65 million broadcast deal that the NFL had crafted with CBS for the rights to televised football games. The price of broadcasting packages quickly accelerated especially after the merger of the NFL and the old AFL, and the antitrust exemption allowed for such singular NFL successes as Monday Night Football. Um, basically, the antitrust exemption means the NFL teams can uh, negotiate broadcasting rights as a group. 
Antitrust laws are against monopolization. NFL is a complete monopolization. And that's why uh, the alternate uh, competition that Donald Trump was involved in in the 80s failed. One of the reasons. The uh, ESPN, the sports network, pays uh, roughly $2 billion a year to the NFL for television rights. Uh, to pay for that, if you have cable and satellite in America, you have to um, ante up nine bucks a month, whether you want to or not. Let's not even talk about the cost of NFL stadiums, which are built with taxpayer money. Since 1997, 20 of them, each of them costing hundreds of millions of dollars each. So they've got antitrust exempt, they get their stadiums built with taxpayers' money, uh, if you have cable or satellite, you have to pay for uh, NFL, whether you want it or not. Nine bucks a month. Fucking hell. It's almost 100 bucks a year. No, it's over 100 bucks a year. $108 a year. Christ. Teams pay no property tax and no sales tax. Well, <laughs> what could President Trump do? Fucking hell. You could take all that away. Why are they sales tax exempt? Why are they property tax exempt? So they get a stadium built for them and they don't have to pay any property tax. Fucking hell, I'd love that. Someone give me a house, build a house for me, and I don't have to pay any property tax on it. I wonder who pays the upkeep costs. Be interesting to find out. If you guys, if, if, if people think that Trump is just sitting there watching all this, I mean, sure he said that uh, the NFL should fire athletes who uh, refuse to stand for the flag. Then the, then the team owners got involved. They doubled down. They think that Trump is just going to slink away on this. All I'm going to say on this one to finish it off with is stay tuned. Watch this space. Because, because as we as I speak, Trump is is working something out. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind about that at all. No doubt in my mind. Um, all right, what else do I want to talk about this week? Um, electric cars. Electric cars. Personal bugbear of mine. Whenever I uh, I see a Tesla drive past me in the street. I want to throw up in my own mouth. But that's neither here nor there, of course. Um, I saw a uh, an article on the Coyote blog, which is absolutely fantastic, and I'm going to uh, include it in Friday's uh, links of the week. And my every Friday on my blog, I do a week hot chicks and weekly links, and this is going to be in there. But I want, I want to talk about it a little bit as well. So a guy called um, Eric Schmidt did a tweet uh, from The Economist. Eric Schmidt from The Economist. Okay. Electric motors are the unsung, un, unsung hero of clean energy. The latest are 97% efficient versus 45% for internal combustion. Uh, and he's got a th links to a piece of his in The Economist as electric motors improve, more things are being electrified, 
better motors to go with better batteries. So electric motors, 97% efficient versus 45% for internal combustion, so petrol, diesel, that sort of thing. And um, you might be listening to that and going, oh, dear. Well, it looks like the electric ones have got it. The problem is, this is a comparison, as, as Guy Coyote blog rightly says, is comparing apples to oranges. Because the petrol car doesn't just drive the power chain. The petrol car converts fuel into energy to drive the powertrain. Whereas the electric car only drives the powertrain. The electricity has been already generated and they're not counting that in the equation. And the vast majority of electricity, the vast, the overwhelming amount of electricity is produced by coal-fired power station or gas turbines. So to do a true comparison of these two things and not a sneaky lying one from Eric Schmidt or he's just hopelessly deluded and stupid but he's supposedly got an MBA and all that sort of stuff so he must be really smart. What you have to do is you have to factor in the equation of producing the energy. I love how he says electric motors are the unsung hero, hero of clean energy. Well, what are you talking about? It's, it's from coal-fired gas plants, coal-fired power stations and gas turbines. We're talking about. Now, this has always pissed me off. And I've always, I've always been like, because I you don't have to be a fucking genius to work this out, guys. But you do have to know a fair bit about the technical aspects to be able to prove it. And that's why I'm linking this piece of Friday from Coyote Blog, because he did it. So, uh, let's have a look here. So, he went and had a look at power plants, and he decided to do, he was going to be generous, because as, as a power plant gets older, it gets less efficient, okay? Um... For a coal plant, I'm reading from his thing here, for an energy efficiency number, for a coal plant, the best numbers are in, the, so with the most modern coal plant that's out there, not a coal plant built in the 60s or something like that, the best numbers are in the high 40s. For a gas plant, this can reach into the 50s. So we'll take 50% as a reasonable number for a very, very efficient power plant. Power plants, by the way, since they tend to run constantly at ideal speeds and loads, get much closer to their ideal efficiency in real life than, say, internal combustion engines. So, yes, power plants do have an advantage over internal combustion engines. After electricity is produced, we have to take into account line and transformer losses, and in the case of electric cars, the battery charging losses. This obviously varies a lot, but I've always used a figure of 10% losses, so we'll go with a 90% efficiency number here. Taking these numbers, let's convert the 97% efficiency number for electric motors to an efficiency number all the way back to the fuel. So it is apples to apples with internal combustion. 
We take 97% times 90% transmission efficiency times 50% electricity production equals, drum roll, 43.6%, which is less than his 45% figure for the internal combustion engine. So by his own numbers, the electric motor is worse. That's not all, though. That's not all, because it gets better. The distribution for a liquid fuel system is already in place. The distribution network for a fuel system is in place. You can go, and you can go to your petrol station and fill up your car. To re replace an entire liquid fuel distribution system with something else, think about how expensive that's gonna be. But, we do have an energy distribution in place, and that's electricity. Okay, great. Okay. What are the problems with this? The problems is energy storage density. All right. So when they first invented automobiles back in the turn of the 20th century, they tried all the different... Uh, um, ways to power them including steam and electric and d gasoline won out because of energy storage density so 15 gallons of gasoline weighs 90 pounds which takes up two cubic feet and this will carry a 40 mile per gallon car 600 miles the tesla model s 85 kilowatt battery pack weighs 1200 pounds and will carry the car 265 miles so you can see that even with what Musk from Tesla claims is twice the energy density of other batteries, the Tesla gets 0.22 miles per pound of fuel battery, while the regular car can get 6.7. It's an enormous difference. 0.22 miles compared to 6.7. That's that's crazy different. Let's not even talk about, let's not even talk about um, the fact that, that in Australia, for instance, when they're trying to go renewable energy, I just, I love that term, renewable energy. Um, we're already having power blackouts now. Can you imagine if every car on the road would be having to be, the electricity would have to go to, to the cars as well? You just, just, there's just no way. Um, so I'm going to link this uh, this episode, uh, this article um, on um, Friday. Read it so you are ready to blow someone out of the park where it comes to electrical um, vehicle efficiency. Really, really good article. Okay. Um, now, next thing I want to talk about is uh, a comment that was left on, I did my comment of the week this week on Saturday, titled Two Rules for Dealing with Women. Um, and I, I come up with two things. Number one, never date a woman who is older than you. And remember, guys, these are, these are generalizations. 
There are always exceptions to rules. But the exceptions tend to prove the rule. Never date a woman who is older than you, is what I said. Um, and I'll read from my post. As always, with any decision, we need to consider the potential upsides and downsides. Potential upsides of dating an older woman are very few and far between. Remember, women age worse than men. I'm not talking about screwing around. I'm talking about dating. If you're dating someone, you are, you're with them because you think this person is good enough for me, I suppose, for the rest foreseeable, yeah? As always, it's also the power dynamic. Power dynamic is, is, is wonky with uh, older women, younger men. Very, very, very out of whack. Uh, and you can read the you can read the post. I'll link this in the notes. Hang on, link comment of the week. So I said uh, my two rules are: never date a woman who's older than you, um, and never date a woman who's been divorced. Um, why never date a woman who's been divorced? Well. The vast majority of divorces are initiated by women. So if you have a divorced woman, the, the, it's a very high probability that she initiated the divorce, which means that she will ditch you if something better comes along. And she will ditch you if things start getting hard. Now, she's, she's not in it for the long haul. That's what that's saying. Are there women who have who have divorced men because the man was a horrible piece of shit and they should know, blah, 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 blah. yes yes but what do you what percentage of those do you think are the case versus the women who are just flaky bitches exceptions prove the rule guys take your own chances take your own chances for me never date a woman who's older than you never date a woman who's been divorced which brings me to Comment from long-time commenter. Long-time commenter on the blog here so long. Uh, American chap, I think, uh, yeah, he's early 50s. I'll read, his, um, I'll read his comment in full and we'll have a look at it. So puts, this puts some of us in a bind. Uh, I'm divorced due to addiction issues of ex-spouse. Fair enough. He's, I'm early 50s. Not interested in having kids at this point because I don't want to be raising them into my 70s. Mm -hmm, I'll get back to that. So choices. 40s with former or current kids and divorced. 30s and probably going to want kids. 20s and way too young to be interesting. Not many options left, but no one talks about this particular situation on any of the advice boards in inverted commas. Also makes me wonder, if I'm divorced and I consider myself a reasonable person and a good catch who did not divorce for frivolous reasons, couldn't there be women out there in a similar situation? Yes, there could be, as I've already stated. How do I find them or pick them out of the crowd? Meanwhile, I just keep getting older and the situation keeps getting worse from the above perspective. Long-time commenter as well, Alan, responded with this. Uh, here's so long, I hear you. My first wife died when I was in my 40s. Yeah, you're more interested in older women for some pretty good reasons. Stable, financially sound, what have you. Most women I dated were widows in professions who went back to work after their loss. The vast majority of them were keepers. Many of them I met through mutual friends and at various social functions. I just want to throw a, a spanner in Alan's works here. And uh, by the way, Alan's probably one of my favorite commenters, but I still, most of the women I dated were widows in professions. Uh, the vast majority of them were keepers. If they were keepers, Alan, why didn't you keep them? 
the 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 either either you're a prick or they weren't keepers. We, you know what I mean? What I'm saying? If you're just dating us and slept with them, I'm, I'm on a casual shag. Fine. I don't think that's what uh, he so long is looking for though. Uh, most of them I met through mutual friends and at various social functions. That there is the key, getting out and mixing it up in society with the added bonus of doing something good outside of work. I, it goes on about volunteer boards, blah, 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 blah. Um, I think that that's good advice up to a point. Like Alan gives your local library and historical society usually needs volunteers. Yes, but the type of women who go to those are going to be overwhelming lefty fucking freaks. Uh, I, I'd join a shooting club to meet chicks before I, I'd join a library. I'll tell you that right now. So look, let's go back to uh, Hisselong's comment. So he's divorced due to addiction issues of ex-spouse, early 50s, not interested in having kids at this point because I don't want to be raising them into my 70s. Uh, what does he do? Choices, 40s, go out with 40-year-old broad with former recovered kids and divorced. 30-year-old and probably going to want kids. By the way, if you go out that with, if you go out, if you go out with a woman with kids, you inherit her kids and all of their bullshit. There's no way I'd do that. Absolutely no way. There's no way in hell that I would take that roulette spin. So 30-year-old women probably going to want kids? You may as well say definitely going to want kids, mate. Definitely. 20s and way too young to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it depends. I think way... I think uninteresting women are un, are uninteresting across the board. By the time you hit 25. If you're an uninteresting woman at 25, you're going to be an uninteresting woman at 50. And an interesting woman at 50 or 40 at 30 was an interesting woman at 25. There's not many interesting women out there. So I don't think you should just scrub the 20s off like that. However... Here so long doesn't want the problem of having kids. Okay, I'm going to tell a personal story at this point. And it's my father. My mother and father got divorced. I think it came through when I was 14. And my father would have been 44 at the time. And I remember him going, he moved out of the house because he was, he was thrown out of his own house basically. He was the only one working. He was thrown out of his own house and he st stayed in a, until the divorce got sorted, he stayed in a succession of different share houses. Which, so my brother and younger brother and I went to visit him and it was, I just remember it being uh, pretty depressing. I still remember the houses, I still remember one in particular. Uh, he started, he, he shared with other people. He did one house, he shared with other people, or two houses, and then he just got a place of his own and he rented. I remember that place as well. And I just remember how, de how, de 
quietly depressing it was. Nothing was ever said. Years later, I asked him about that time and about his age. And he um, admitted to me that he just, he just, it had been so rough for him. It had been such a total shit fight. And he was of that age, probably the age I am now, where his attitude was, he just accepted that he was going to be alone for the rest of his life. That's, that's where he was at. He divorced my mother. Oh, he and my mother split up when I was 13. He had a, he had a series of dated a few women, some of them with kids, and me and my brother had to hang out with them all the time. There was one uh, chick from Norway who had two spunky teenage daughters. I wish he'd stayed with her. Um, and then when I was 18, he met uh, a woman who became his second wife, who was uh, way younger than him. So she was 20 years younger than him and only 10 years older than me. So she was closer to my age than she was to his. So she was 28. I think at the time and my dad was 48 these are rough rough approximations and she didn't have kids and they hooked up it was a big deal it caused a bit of a scandal a mini scandal not really I was pretty outraged as only an 18 year old can be he got the house in the divorce settlement he sold it and bought a house with her um, and then he went and had two kids with her. So my dad's uh, 75 this year, and he's got a teenage daughter graduating from high school. So what's the point? By the way, I think having those... Two kids, because I've got two sisters now, two half-sisters. So one's 17, one's 22. I think having those two kids um, really kept my dad young. He's kept working the whole time because he's had no choice. But I can't imagine my dad not working. He loves, he loves his job. He loves his work. He's a, he's a, he works for himself. He's a consultant. Uh, but I really think having those kids kept him young. But the, the point from the example is, is my dad's mindset of he just accepted the fact that he was probably going to be alone for the rest of his life. I think that's a good mindset to have. As, as everything, if you run around looking for it, you don't find it, even if it's sitting right in front of your face. That acceptance of, okay, look, this is, the, this is the hand that life has dealt me at this point. Um, I'm just going to get on with it. I'm just going to get on with it. And I think, I think you're just going to get on with it and put yourself in a situations like Alan was talking about there in his comment where you've got a chance of meeting women. Uh, my dad actually met his second wife through uh, kayaking weekends that we were doing. She was um, 
She was working for one of the other guys who came on the kayaking weekend. That's how my dad met her. So, as regards to the kids thing, I'm I'm 99% sure, even though I've never spoken to my father about this, I'm 99% sure he had no choice. If he wanted to keep, if he wanted to keep this woman, then he had to have kids again. And he did. And he did. And it's, look, and generally it's worked out pretty well. 75 and a 17-year-old daughter, it's kept my dad young. It has kept my dad young. Um, so he had his last kid at, what, 58? Something like that, 57. Something like that. Yeah. 2000. Fifty, around that. I'm a bit mucked up with the years, but at an age where you don't really want to be doing it. Um. Yeah, no, shit. Yeah, fifty, fifty-six, fifty-seven. Okay, I'm getting my maths all wrong. Actually, yeah, fifty-eight. Um. So that's. That's the only thing I can tell you on it. Here, Salon. It is a tricky one. But I think it's accept that acceptance of the situation is the most important thing. To just, okay, no worries. Keep moving forward. Do you want companionship? Yes. Do you want someone to share your life with? Yes. Is it working out for you at this moment in the situation you're in? No, because of, of events and circumstances that have happened. Okay, keep moving on. Keep your eyes open. Keep your options open. Put yourself in situations where you're going to meet them. And don't put preconditions on it. Just stay away from the divorce ones. Stay away from them. Because women initiate the vast majority. I know here so long that you're divorced. But it's, but it's, it's different with men. Men are the ones getting fucked over in divorce at the moment. There's very few guys out there who who divorce their wives and get the and get the fucking the sharp they, they get the soft end of the stick in the divorce settlement and get their wife paying alimony to them for the next thirty years. Mike Cernovich is an example of that. Good on him, I suppose, but uh, I can't really say good on him. I, I still think it's fucked. Whether a, a woman does it or a man does it, I, I still think it's fucked. You got you got no right to that. It's just ridiculous. So there you go, here's along. Someone younger than you. Early fifties, that's definitely what you want. Uh, so that shouldn't be a, a bone of contention. And stay away from divorcees. Just stay away from them. My dad hooked up with a twenty eight year old. I think twenty eight, twenty nine is a really good age. Dirty. But you're probably probably gonna have to go to the kids' route. So what? When they start having real problems, you'd be dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't worry about it. You'd be dead. Ah, don't worry. You'll be fine. So that's my answer to that.
You probably think it's piss poor. What can I? What can I say? What can I say? What can I do? What can I say? I can't do any more than that. That's all I do. Don't get your comment read out. What more do you want? All right. Shout out to Captain Capitalism. He's uh, he's back from his ride and he's um, and he's uh, doing his thing. He's got a video called "The Day Is Coming, Ladies," which is basically I, I watched it. I agree with everything Cappy said on it. It's basically about how uh, how women. Men don't criticise women in the workplace because they want to sleep with them. Uh, it's very true. Bill Burr apparently said that. And uh, and women have spent their whole adult lives uh, taking for granted the fact that um, that uh, men want to sleep with them. When you hear women complaining about, oh, you know, I got ogled by these guys, rah, 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 rah. It's just, as, as Kathy said, just roll your eyes. He's got this great video about it. The thing that he left out, though, and I think I think the key to really shocking women when they get to the age where guys aren't wolf whistling them at the street, they don't want to sleep them with it anymore. I heard it described by a woman as as you go invisible, you become invisible to men. They look through you. You're walking down the street now as a woman and. And, and the guy's on the other side of the street, he catches up, he, he catches a look at you and he takes the second look. You know the look I'm thinking. You don't get that anymore. They look through you. You become invisible. Cappy didn't mention that in his, in his, uh, in his um, video there, but uh, I think that's a devastating way of describing what he's talking about. And it's a way that really, really makes women sit up and take notice if they've got half a brain. Becoming invisible to men. They're your two choices. They, I mean, not choices. They're your two, your two realities. Either men are, are noticing you, they're attracted to you, they're doing a double take, they're checking you out, or you're invisible to them. That moment where you're walking down the street and you become and you realise that you're invisible. Devastating. So Cappy's got the uh, that up, um, and uh, CaptainCapitalism.blogspot.com com is his website he's uh, got a bunch of books out which are excellent and his asshole consulting business is base is where he takes your questions you pay him money he'll produce a video for you and uh and put it up on the internet answering your questions keeping it anonymous and he'll tell you what you need to hear not necessarily what you want to hear the ultimate aaron clary is the ultimate free speech advocate i think on the internet um, so go and check him out. He's, uh, he's a friend as well. He, um, I, I have to admit that I've been giving Aaron a bit of shit lately about his um, uh, predilection for Irish Spring Soap. And uh, yesterday, uh, last or oh, a couple of weeks ago, he was in a cigar bar and he sent me a photo of him in a cigar bar. And, and then he uh, we went back and forth a bit on it emails and then he, he said oh what's your uh, postage address and i i just assumed that he was finally sending me the cigar that i want off him in a vet but no he sent me a pack of irish spring soap and two loofers one pink and one blue i never i've never even seen a loofer before and 
I don't know if I ever want to see one again. But I have them here now. I have this bar of Irish Spring soap. It actually smells worse than I could ever have possibly imagined. It, I, I described it, I described it look like as some sort of soap to the great one. It's something that Kenny's parents from South Park would use. No. I think this is what um, your dead grandmother would use. This is what um, Howard, the nerd off the Big Bang Theory's mother that you never see. Howard! I think that's what she'd use as a spring soap. I can't believe Cappy. Cappy, Cappy, Cappy. Thank you for it. It was a wonderful surprise. <laughs> I did laugh. I did laugh out loud. I shook my head. I took it out. I looked at it in wonderment that this would come all the way from the United States. Way to use the planet's resources, Cappy. Way to use the planet's resources. Way to waste them. Sending me to Irish Spring soap and loofers. What a despicable human being. Lovely gesture. Okay. That's the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to, if you did enjoy it, subscribe to listen to it. Would it be lovely? Um, up to 100 subscribers now. That's nice. Though every time I get to 100, a couple of drop off. <laughs> it's like, a, it's sitting at 100 now. It's just like, I can't, I can't get excited about it because it's like, eh, it's going to drop back double figures at some point but if you did enjoy it you know subscribe that's nice for me um you can follow me uh also on gab you can follow me uh on my blog um which is getting close to 200 subscribers now which is really good um to give you an idea of the subscriber it's 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 hard to get subscribers because as a subscriber you really want to know what's going on like um xyz magazine that republishes a lot of my um, articles or some of my articles probably about one or two a week they have um, let's have a look here they have eight over eight and a half thousand fans on Facebook and 127 subscribers easy to like something on Facebook it's a lot harder to get them to follow you really follow you so I'm getting close to 200 um, which I'm you know I'm really happy about it's a it's a gradual thing oh and that reminds me today oh, actually tomorrow is the second anniversary of the blog came up I started it two years ago which means my book was released my first book was released roughly two years ago um, and in that time, um, I'm sitting at around 450,000 views in total on the blog. Um, but the majority of those would have been in the last year. So close to, close to half a mil. Um, it's getting there. Hard work and persistence. It's just like anything else you have to post every day you have to do a podcast regularly every week people have to know they can depend on you that they're going to click on your site and something's going to be there on a regular basis and you're going to make it regularly good as good as you can um it's a hard grind it takes time 
It takes time, but it's starting to get there. So look, uh, follow me on my blog, Pushing Rubber Downhill. You can get my books. If you enjoy the way that I chat about these things, I write in exactly the same way. Pushing Rubber Downhill, story about how I, um, how I journeyed to manhood through a whitewater rafting. It's funny, it's exciting. It's got witch doctors in it. And uh, Run Guts, Pull Cones, my second book, about uh, a rafting season in the Italian Alps, all the hijinks of all the Italian rafting guides up there. A lot of fun, that book. Um, you can buy those on paperback. So Dead Tree copy, you can get them on Kindle. You can get the first one on audiobook. So check those stuff out. Uh, that's it for me for this week. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. We've spoken about a lot of different things. And um, spread the word. Leave me a review on iTunes. And uh, I'll chat to you next week. Uh, don't you go changing.